Welcome to the Facts Are What Matter podcast, where we discuss the lies, the myths, and the propaganda being promoted by the media and society. Let's all be informed, not uninformed, or even worse, misinformed. Here we go. Welcome to the Facts Are What Matter. I'm your host, Dave Swinford, and in this episode, we will explore the facts on alternative energy sources. Before we get started, once again, I'd like to say that one of my motivations for starting this podcast was to educate the listeners and supply you with information that you can use to counter the misinformation promoted by the media and the politicians, which are basically the same thing these days. Have you noticed that they go back and forth from government service to cable news networks? Now, some of the key principles I always like to remind myself of and I'd like to pass along to you is, one, a lie a little, lie a lot. When someone is willing to lie or withhold key facts a little bit to get their way, they're usually willing to lie a lot to get the outcome they want. And if they're willing to tell a few small lies, then what's stopping them from telling a lot of, a lot of lies or a really big lie? Follow the money. It's always about the money. You can replace the word money with power or greed. Now, this is not a new principle, but it's easy to forget sometimes the underlying motivation for the media and the politicians is always about power and money, which are pretty much the same thing. Now, I encourage you to share what you know is the truth. Call out the lies and the misconceptions when you see them. Educate your friends and family with the facts in as gentle and kind of way as you can because they may be spending way too much time watching mainstream media. Now let's start talking about alternative energy. Now there's many out there who have this vision of no fossil fuel use at all. Everything is electric. Electric vehicles, there's no heating oil, there's no internal combustion engines, there's no coal furnaces, there's no fireplaces. You know, well... Why? What's the motivation for that? Well, you know, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you know, it was all about pollution, right? So we had, you had all these images on TV of these smokestacks and this black soot coming out of these smokestacks and we'd smog in Los Angeles and all these things that were going on. So we had a, probably had a problem and they put emission controls on automobiles, they put scrubbers on these plants, they quit using uh, certain kinds of coal and had regulations with that. And the pollution, for the most part, got some better. So they needed another, another demon, and that demon was global warming, which didn't happen, so they renamed it to climate change. And that whole premise for that, the whole pre premise for climate change is based on carbon dioxide. That demon little molecule, carbon dioxide, is, being, is heating up the atmosphere, causing the earth to, to warm. Any way you look at it, the use of energy is essential in the modern day world. If you go over to uh, ourworldanddata.org, and you look at the gross domestic product per capita, so that's the GDP per person, from 0 AD to now, it was flat. It was flat for 1,500 years. It was flat. It barely got off a of zero. Other than it starts lifting a little bit, 
in the 17 and 1800s, and that's probably because of the steam engine, it was flat. And it was flat until around 1900, and there's this major inflection point, and it just shoots straight up. You're like, well, what happened? Well, my opinion is the internal combustion engine, the reliable electric generator, and the automobile all happened around that same time frame. And of course, now we have the electronics and the information age, which continues to drive that line straight up. But everything, everything in our modern world is dependent on energy use. Any way you look at it, fossil fuels revolutionize the world. They're incredibly reliable. They're portable. There's lots of energy density in, a, say, a gallon of gasoline. They're efficient. They're relatively clean. And they're relatively safe. You know, you can't say that for all these other alternative energy sources. You know, there's lots of things that have been proposed. Geothermal, well, you know, you can only do that certain places. There's, I mean, there's this crazy thing that was being proposed at one time where they're going to put this big giant satellite panel of, of a reflector and reflect the solar energy down to the ground and use something on the ground to to suck it in and can do something. I'm like, that just sounds fraught with, with problems right there and expensive. The only really no kidding, reliable energy production, this alternative energy production is nuclear energy. It doesn't rely on sunshine. It doesn't care if the wind blows or if it's night or day. It can easily produce energy in small or large quantities. Now, nuclear reactors, of course, are used to generate this electricity, which we use in as you, any way you would use electrical energy. You can use it to charge your electric car or run your light bulbs in your house. It's just an electrical generation capability. And, of course, electrical power is subject to some limitations we have with batteries and, and, and battery storage. That's unknown. So there are some problems with these alternative energy sources in general. And, and when I say that, so really what we're talking about with alternative energy sources, for the most part, is solar photovoltaic cells and windmills, right? Wind. So these, these things, they make electricity many times or only when the conditions are right when the sun shines and when the wind blows. A lot of times, that's in places that you don't really need it, and at times you don't need it. Solar works great in the desert, right? The sun's always shining in the desert, but there's not a lot of people in the middle of the desert, so you got to move that electricity somewhere from the desert to where the people are that use it. And they make it in times that you don't necessarily need it. You can't depend on what time the wind's going to blow. And... You can think that it's going to, the solar is going to work in the middle of the day when the sun's shining bright, but people aren't taking showers and cooking meals and drying their hair and using a clothes dryer or maybe even charging their electric car in the middle of the day because they're at work, they're at school, they're doing other things. So energy profile during the day is not flat. 
and, it, and the energy profile that's use during the year is not flat. You don't need as much energy, say, in the spring and the fall as you do in the winter to heat and the summer to cool. Energy is also pretty hard to store. What do you do with all that energy that you generate in the desert in the middle of the day? Batteries, right? Stored in a battery. Well, how many batteries is it going to take to store enough energy, say, for your house for six hours or 12 hours or two days or a week? That's a lot of batteries. Now, you can do that. You can do that with gasoline or diesel fuel for your generator because it's got a lot of energy density. 20 gallons of gas will get you 350 miles in a car, and you can drive up to a gas pump and put another 20 gallons of gas in and go another 350 miles. Now, you can recharge an electric car, but it takes all day or at least a long time because the truth is as a battery gets full it's harder to put more electricity in it harder to put more power into a battery that starts getting full that's just the way it works so batteries are not a great solution because they also have their own environmental issues. So what's another way to store energy? Well, it turns out that many times what they do is they pump water back into the reservoir. So if you have a hydroelectric plant, you have a, you have a dam with a hydroelectric plant that's making electricity, and you have extra electricity laying around, well, you know what? Let's just take the water that we just ran through there and just pump it back to the top, and we'll use it later. We'll use that later. And you can do that. It works. There's losses all along the way, right? You you know, you lose some energy every time you move it and change the form of it and transmit it somewhere. You lose some, but, but it works. But you have to have the situation to do that. If you're in the middle of, oh, I don't know, New Mexico somewhere, there's not a lot of water to do that. There's not a lot of hydroelectric um, power capabilities in some of these places. You can do it in, you can do it in the Tennessee River. You can maybe do it at the Hoover Dam. I don't know. You can't do it everywhere. Now you can move it. So if you can't store it, what else could you do? You can move it around the grid to someone else that can use it. So let's say you make some electricity in Arizona, and you, you can use it, let's say, in Oregon or Maine. But the, but the electric grid itself is costly, right? It takes a lot of room and is expensive because you have to buy right-of-ways. You have to have all those copper wires. Because we're talking the big, you know, the big tower kind of things. So if you have a, if you took the whole state of Arizona and you turned it into a solar farm and you wanted to move that electricity around the country, you've got to build a lot 
of electric power transmission lines and and towers to move that stuff around the country. And it's costly. And it still doesn't totally fix the problem because the sun rises, let's say, in Maine, way before the sun rises in California. And, you know, again, it gets dark in Maine before it gets dark in California. So it helps that there's some time delay between all these things, but it doesn't fix the storage problem and when you need it. So basically what they do, they use these alternative energy energy sources to offset the fossil fuel use when it's available, and then they switch back to fossil fuels when it's dark and when the wind is blowing. Because you can control that. You can control a natural gas driven electrical plant. You just turn it on, turn it up, I've got electricity. So when the windmills quit blowing, you crank up the natural gas plant. But what that means is you have to have the natural gas plant. You have to have it. We make electricity when the, only when the condition is right. Energy is hard to store. The third one is it takes a lot of space in specific locations for this generation capability. So there's a really good um, paper, article paper um, from the American Experience, and it's by, this paper's by Robert Bryce. It's called Not in Our Backyard. And it's from this think tank. I guess American Experience is a think tank from Minnesota. And what they do in this thing is they're discussing the problems and the concerns in the rural community about all these alternative energy sources and the fact that it's just assumed that basically they can just drop these things in Indiana. They can put a, build a wind farm in Indiana or Minnesota and everybody's going to be okay with that. And they're not. They don't want them. They don't want the windmills. They don't want the solar cells. They don't want the transmission lines coming through their farms, coming through their communities. There's a lot of land that would have to be used to to do that. Some interesting takes in this article. They did uh, they did some analysis to figure out how much land mass would it take, both for wind and solar, to generate the energy required for the United States. And what they found out was to meet to, to to meet the demands with wind energy would require 12% of the landmass of the United States, which is equivalent to two times the size of California. So the land area of California times two would be required to meet the energy demands of the United States with wind energy. Now, solar is more efficient. So solar, to meet the demands from a solar would require the landmass equivalent to Maine. Now, I'm guessing that's assuming that that solar is available all the time and not some place like Maine where there's clouds and rain and and not sunny all the time like, say, Arizona. This report also discusses 
the economics of it. And they say in here that the incentives given to the wind and solar are distorting the wholesale power markets and raising the cost for consumers. You think, well, how does it raise the cost? Well, what they say in here is wind and solar generators do not pay fuel costs, but they get lucrative tax incentives. That means the wind and solar generators can, during time periods, pay to have the grid operators take the electricity off their hands. And they call this negative pricing. So basically they say, hey, here's here's a hundred bucks, take my power. Equivalent, you know, that kind of thing. So this situation works for renewable producers because they're getting tax favors. But this negative pricing undermines the economic viability of traditional power generators like nuclear and gas plants, which are required to keep the grid stable and functioning during the times the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. And the end result of all this is that the market is distorted and ends up having higher rates for consumers. They did this in California. They looked at this in California. This uh, Berkeley-based think tank, Environmental Progress, released a report which showed that California's electricity rates rose at more than five times the rate of electricity prices in the rest of the United States between 2011 and 2017. So these alternative energy sources were actually raising the price of electricity to the consumer. The use of alternative energy sources requires nearly 100% excess capacity in the form of fossil fuel and other reliable sources to meet the times of high demand. So a great example of this is the freeze in Texas, I think it was February of this year, 2021, where the backup fossil fuel plant was not available and the windmills weren't spinning and the electricity stopped being generated. So the heaters didn't work and the water pipes froze. Now, Texas is a different situation than most places because Texas has its own grid. So there's generally an East Coast grid and a West Coast grid, and there's this Texas grid. And so most of Texas, not all, but there's most of Texas is its own little power grid. And they're not connected to the other ones. And so when the windmills quit and the natural gas plant wasn't up for whatever reason, they didn't have power. It's a good example. So how do you evaluate these energy sources, say if you're an investor or you're a consumer who may want to put some solar cells on your house? How do you know if it's, if it's a good deal? The metric used mostly to evaluate the, quote, goodness is the levelized cost of energy. And this levelized cost of energy takes into account the cost to build, the cost to operate, the cost of fuel, the maintenance cost, the cleanup after you're done kind of cost. A really good example of this, there's a Lazard study, L-A-Z-A-R-D, like lizard but with an A, Lazard. 
And Lazard, this Lazard study is an investment bank analysis, and they do this. I've, looks like they do this every year, and they look at the levelized cost of energy for all these different sources: um, wind, solar, you know, the solar for your house, solar that tracks the sun, you know, different kinds of different kinds of solar, different kinds of wind, onshore, offshore, those kinds of things, and. Wind and solar look really good when you looked at this levelized cost of energy because guess what? You don't have to fuel it with anything. You don't have to put coal in it. You don't have to put diesel fuel in it. You don't have to put natural gas in it. You don't have to, it doesn't require anything. The fuel costs are zero. But there's another metric buried down in there that they don't talk about a lot. It's called capacity factor. And what capacity factor is, is basically another way to say, is it available? Is it available? Kind of buried in there is also, is it available at the right power levels or whatever? So this capacity factor is going to vary greatly depending on your location, specifically the wind and the sun at your location. And they kind of give a range. And it turns out that solar capacity factor is between 13% and 34%. So it's really only available between 13 and 34% of the time. So you buy this, you buy these solar cells, and it's really only generating the power you're expecting it to do 13 to 30% of the time. Because you know it's not producing, producing power at night, so that's almost 50%. And it's not going to produce much power when it's, when it's cloudy. So there you go. You're already down to 30% probably. At least 30% or less. So it turns out wind is a little bit better. And they break it down. There's wind onshore and offshore. And I think offshore is probably a little bit more uh, predictable and dependable, of course, because of the ocean. I don't know. Um, but... It turns out it's a little bit better. It's between 38 to 55%. Now, again, you're, you're buying this equipment. You're spending all the money for this equipment. You're installing it, you're, and you're putting it in, and you're really only getting the power out of it half the time. This is kind of like, I like to use this example. It's kind of like buying a brand new car. And you only get to drive it a couple of days a week. It just sits in the garage. You still have to pay the car payment on it. You know, you have you have to have another car because you have to have something reliable. But you want this other thing and you buy it and it sits in the car, it sits in the garage most of the time because the sun's not shining. And the conditions aren't perfect, so you don't get to take it out. So it drives up your cost of ownership. So instead of having one good, reliable vehicle, you have two. And one of those you can't use all the time. Just causes your cost to go up. So how about a large, challenging area? I mean, let's let's face it. If you have to depend on solar energy, say, for Arizona, that's that's a no-brainer, right? It's sunny all the time in Arizona. 
even the wintertime it's sunny. I mean, this, there's there's sun all the time, and and there's a fair amount of wind. Fair amount of wind in the deserts of California and Southern California. But what about Canada? So there's a article called The True Cost of Wind and Solar Electricity in Alberta by the Friends of Science. And they they go into this and they evaluate the situation. And, um, of course, Canada is high in latitude, which means as you get farther up in latitude, in the wintertime, the nights get long, and, of course, they get cold. And, of course, in the summer, you have long days. So, you know, it's not quite Arctic Circle where it's, you know, 24 hours of sun, but, but, but it gets longer. They highlight in this article, of course, solar, not only does it output very over the course of 24 hours due to cloud cover and the Earth's rotation, it also varies seasonally. And this report did a study, and it goes on to show that there's an energy shortfall every month from October to March. So if you depend on solar energy for your power, and you got these giant battery packs, giant battery packs, right? And you store this energy during the summer and the spring. But from October to March, you're dipping into the battery all the time. It will require massive amounts of batteries to store and supply energy in the fall and winter months. And this report, of course, points out the seasonality gets worse as we move away from the equator again, right? Which makes course, solar generation much less economic in Alberta than, say, Arizona. So that, that's another really good, it's, it's, these reports are long, lots of technical detail, lots of, a lot of them have a lot of economic detail in them, but I encourage you, if you just really want to, if you're really interested in this topic, to dive into these things. And the final one, that I like to talk about is from a gentleman who writes a lot on uh, what's up with that.com and that's W A T T S up with that. And he generally writes a lot of stuff about, about climate change and, and uh, he also writes about energy, but he just does these simple calculations and shows people that some of the things that they're promoting is not viable. So this article he has written from earlier this year, and he addresses the feasibility of replacing all fossil fuels. This article is called Bright Green Impossibilities. So he looked at the current energy demand today in fossil fuels, using fossil fuels, and predicted what the energy demand was going to be in 2050, you know, if you, if you go look at this, ourworldanddata.com, it can tell you what the, he looked at that and looked at what the predicted demand was going to be in 2050. And he used that to calculate how much, what the, what the shortfall is we have now versus then, how much we have to generate, how, how much alternative energy we have to generate both now and to be 100% fossil fuel independent by 2050, 
what would we have to do to get there? Just back of the back of the envelope kind of calculations, simple calculations. You know, we calculate the energy in a barrel of oil versus the energy or the energy uses we have now versus the energy to get there and how much energy generation capability we have and how much we're going to need. This is just high level. You don't have to start from the bottom. You just start from the top. So anyways, in his calculations, he figured out that we would need to bring online a brand new 2.1 gigawatt nuclear reactor every day from now until 2050. One 2.1 gigawatt nuclear reactor per day from now until 2050. That's pretty significant when you think about the fact you have to design it, you have to acquire the land, get the permits, get the license for the reactor, build the facility, validate it, test it, start it up, hire the people. Easily, that's a 10-year process. Easily. How many have we brought online this century? How many have we brought online since 2000? I believe that number is one. One. Or, he goes on here, or we could build and install 3,000 wind turbines every day until 2050. Every day. Again, we got to buy the materials, we got to build the turbines, build those giant carbon fiber blades, acquire the right of ways for the land, get the permits, you know, run the power grids in there, build the. If you've seen the, how they build these things, they have a, these giant bases with all this rebar and concrete. You got to build 3,000 of those a day, every day. Or. We can install 100 square miles of solar panels per day, every day, until 2050. 100 square miles. Again, buy the materials, build the arrays, acquire the land, the rights away for the got to run wire the grid into there, all that stuff. 100 square miles a day. Now, he may be wrong. Maybe he made a mistake in his calculation. Don't think he did, but it, let's say he's off by a factor of 10. Let's say he's off by a factor of 10. What does that mean? Well, now we got to build one nuclear reactor every 10 days from now until 2050. We got to install 300 wind turbines every day, not 3,000. We got to install 10 square miles every day. Actually, that's probably not right because it's square. But it, it, what, I'm, what I'm saying is it's going to be impossible. It's going to be impossible to replace all of the fossil fuels, all the energy we use in the form of fossil fuels by 2050. It's impossible. It's not even close to possible. There you go. That's the facts. Here's some facts about alternative energy sources. They're interesting. They're 100% viable. 
They're useful, but they're not going to replace all fossil fuels for the next many years. Well, that's all I have for this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, Remember to uh, like and subscribe, and we'll be back soon with another episode of Facts Are What Matter. Thanks for listening to the Facts Are What Matter podcast. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to catch our future episodes.